Welcome to Examiner Radio, the weekly radio show and podcast that covers news, politics, and all things Halifax. I'm Russell Gregg, Examiner Radio producer. This is episode 81 of Examiner Radio. You can hear the show on CKDU 88.1 FM in Halifax every Friday at 4.30 p.m. or online anywhere in the world at www.ckdu.ca. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or any other podcast aggregation platform you happen to use. Just search for Halifax Examiner, and it should be the first result. This week's episode is a little different, and significantly longer than most of them. On Tuesday, September 27th, we recorded a debate organized by Dalhousie University professor Todd McCallum. In it, six of the seven candidates running for office for District 8, Halifax North, were asked questions by McCallum, the audience, and the Halifax Examiner's own Tim Bousquet. Over the next 90 minutes, you'll hear from candidates Irvine Carvery, Anthony Kowalski, Patrick Murphy, Chris Poole, Lindell Smith, and Brendan Summerholder. Martin Farrell claimed to be double-booked and did not attend. District 8 has the second-highest number of candidates vying for a council seat in next month's municipal election, and the area's residents have a range of concerns, ranging from seemingly unfettered development in the district to food scarcity to diversity on city council. Without further ado, let's listen. like 1.30 in American time, so, <laughs> right. Okay, um, so um, the first question for all of the candidates is to take two minutes and to explain your connection to District 8. We'll start with Mr. Carvery. District 8, which was formerly Ward 5. Um, I've, been, I've been a citizen of District 8 for all my life. My family has lived in District 8 for seven generations. I was in District 8 in the North End before there was a North End. I'm from Africville. And our community was on the shores of Bedford Basin. And the city of Halifax ended at North Street. So you had to go through all the woods to get out to where I live. But I've been, my family has been here for seven generations. I've been uh, very active in my community. I'm a lifelong volunteer at the community YMCA. I've served on numerous boards. Uh, the incentive fund, I worked with a group in District 8 to oppose the sewage treatment plant that was located at the foot of Cromwalla Street. We weren't successful in stopping that sewage treatment plant, but we were able to convince City Hall to take the $1 million that they were investing in communities and we used and we invested the one million dollars and it's called the community investment fund and uh, students living in the boundaries are eligible for scholarships coming out of that fund it also is used to support community efforts within the neighborhood i i was the original member of that committee i have served on the um, Black Educators Association, which is located on Goddington and Kamala Street. I'm currently chair of the Council on African-Canadian Education. Um, District 8 has, uh, is, is my home. It's my home. My uh, son lives here. All my family, my immediate family, live in District 8. It's a, that's two minutes. Very good. 
Anthony Kowalski. I live on Brunswick Street at the doorstep of Uniac and the cusp of downtown, where as an artist and creative, every day I extol the virtues of the North End, the city, and Nova Scotia through uh, social media. I'm not from here, but I am of here. I have lobbied local not-for-profits to improve the standard of their housing provision. I've lobbied the police commissioner on street crime in our area. I'm the bane of 311, calling in to clean up and improve conditions for all who live on the street, my street, and our district. I'm currently working with our Justice Minister to add a major uh, provision to our Human Rights Act to afford protection to all citizens of the district, HRM, and province. I've worked at provincial level on new government policy for an ECE provision proposal which was inspired by the great and wonderful early childhood education work in the heart of our district. I've worked and crafted a policy piece on literacy and free, yes, free college education to NS-born students and residents. I'm currently working on a social justice piece with all levels of government as we head towards the much-vaunted centre plan. Worked behind the scenes to reverse and mitigate the Homes Not Hondas debacle, and although I've not volunteered as much as I would have liked, I do volunteer for CKDU Radio currently, and uh, only this week um, vaunted Grace Mission, a new... Um, a new piece to my component of my learning curve of the District 8. Um, my name is Patrick Murphy. I'm a lifelong resident of uh, today District 8, former District 11, as Irvin uh, uh, mentioned, also Ward 5 at one time. Um, as a lifelong resident, my family goes back probably to the teens, and um, my father, uh, or my grandfather, returned from uh, Newfoundland. And, uh, after the Alpha explosion, his two two brothers were killed up in Duffa Street, and uh, and our uh, the home he lived in was rebuilt in Russell Street, and we still kind of live all down around Russell and Kay and, and Young Street. Um, as a lifelong resident, I uh, was always a community activist when it came to working with youth, uh, coaching. Uh, have uh, long history of the Ward Five Neighborhood Center, and presently sit on the We Care board, and also work with the Walter Clue Board, which is a wheelchair organization that we raise money, private money, uh, for uh, veterans so they can have a, play, have a chance to get around transportation-wise transportation on, on wheelchair buses. So I uh, was the counselor from 2004 to 2008, and uh, I uh, ran 2000. I wasn't happy with what's going on in the neighborhood, and then I ran 2004. I was elected, and I thought we had a lot of great projects done uh, during that time. Uh, every um, playground in the North End was... Uh, redone, uh, even opened a little community police office, and uh, um, also uh, had a youth strategy, uh, which I thought was very important. So um, anyway, you sit back and you look around, and then we have some development issues that come up, and I'm not happy. And I'm not happy with some of the development going on in the North Peninsula, 
Some people like call it North End, but you know, depending what part of the North End you're in, it's going to be far North End. But if you're up around the Berlin Street area or down on Quimper Road where I was, or by Yukon Street, I wouldn't really call that the North End. It's more central. But uh, we're not happy with uh, some of the, uh, the development that has gone on. And we're not happy with the process. And I'll talk about that later. Thank you. Chris Poole. Thank you. Um, so the pools have been in the north end of Halifax since before the Halifax explosion. My, uh, my grandfather's sister came over just before the explosion and passed away. Um, then my grandfather came over afterwards. Uh, I've, been a, I've been a resident of the north end of Halifax for the last 25 years. Uh, I, I consider the north end of Halifax my home. I raise my family here. I, uh, you know, I volunteer here. I work here. I play here. I sit on the board. I chair the board of Mulgrave Park Caring and Learning Center. I'm a board member for the Northern Lights Lantern Festival. I'm also a board member for the North End Daycare. Um, I volunteer in all the local schools. I was an SAC and home and school member for, for St. Joseph St. McKay's School, St. Stephen's School. I volunteered at St. Catherine's School. I volunteered at Highland Park School. And I also volunteered at Oxford School. I spent a lot of time helping out the, the local schools with their fundraising ability. Uh, played a major role. If you're familiar with the North End of Halifax and the St. Joseph St. McKay School, the upper playground uh, was in dire need of replacement, and uh, I was one of the original people that got together and raised the almost $170,000 to make that a possibility. Um, you know, it's it's my home, and like like Patrick said, and like everyone else has said so far, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of things happening in the North End, and uh, we need strong leadership to make sure that when development and changes are happening, that it's, it's answering the calls of the community and the people that live here. Thank you. Thank you. Mr. Smith. Good evening, everybody. Thank you for being here. It's an opportunity to speak to you as your next potential city councillor. I grew up in North End of Halifax my whole life. Been in resident District 8 my whole life. I've been educated in the district, going to St. Pat's Alexander, St. Pat's High, um, SJM, my daughter, who currently attend, attends that school, so understanding raising a family here, a young child, being a young person in the community, understanding the issues and, and wanting to advocate for them. for them. I currently work at the North Branch Library as a community library assistant, focusing on teens and also as a supervisor, managing staff in branch operations. So I understand the, the importance of having a team, a team spirit, but also working with teens, which is which I enjoy the most. I co-founded Centerline Studio on Uniac and Goddard Street. It's a place for young people to express themselves in the arts and give them a, a place to feel welcome and, and a place to call their own. Uh, sat on I sit on various boards in the community. I sat on Hope Blooms, Halifax Community Investment Fund, like Irvin has mentioned before, um, North End Business Association, um, Case African Nova Scotia Council Education. So underst I understand the importance of board governance and the process that's needed to, to, to make, make these things work. And as a city councilor, we need to have somebody who understands these processes, but also understands what happens on the ground level and understands what our people are saying and is able to get things done and have a proven track record of that. And I believe I'm the person that, that has that track record. Thank you. Hi, my name is Brendan Summerhalder. Uh, how are you doing today? I just wanted to uh, take you through a really, uh, just a neck break uh, kind of understanding of what District 8 is. It was the former Ward 5 for sure, but it was also, uh, it's also lots more than that since the redistricting has happened. It's a really big and diverse district, and I'd like to just take you through it here a little bit. So, where are we at? Oh. 
There we go. So, so uh, District Eight takes in uh, seven different uh, census tracts. It's so so large. Here they are, right there. Uh, census tracts are are interesting because uh, Statistics Canada tracks a, a lot of different well statistics about the various uh, censuses. So it's interesting to see the kind of diversity that does exist here. Um, you know, just here's an example. Between the seven census tracts, uh, there there's a range of median income, uh, household median income that 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 doubles itself. So in the lowest median income area. Area, it's just 17 and a half K versus 35 and a bit uh, in the most affluent area in District 8. So there, there's a lot of space to cover here all the way from uh, the West End, uh, North End and, and Quinpool. So we've got, you know, we've got the, the North End and Gottagen Street here, which has uh, a lot of intersectionality uh, around it. It's been a community that has been supporting uh, the, the uh, African Nova Scotian community, the Mi'kmaq community, uh, the LGBTQ community. It's a highly important uh, area of our community. Quinpool Road is in there. It's one of the most uh, pri independent, independently owned uh, business areas in all of Halifax. We have the West End and Westmount, some of our best, uh, most uh, well-protected uh, residential areas uh, in Halifax. We have, of course, the Hydrostone, we have Mulgrave Park, Needham, uh, Richmond, all of these areas all fall within District 8. So it's a really interesting uh, challenge and opportunity to, to represent all of these folks. Uh, here, as the uh, I was the founder of Halifax Bloggers here in Halifax, 2014, the only collaborative blogging platform in the region still. Uh, I have a partner who's in the back. Uh, she's a lifelong North Ender, so she keeps me straight. Uh, I adopted a dog here. That's Buster. Uh, so, <laughs> yes, indeed. I volunteer here, and of course, uh, I, I write about issues from here, and I advocate about all sorts of things here. I was the chair of the planning advisory committee for our area, and based on that, I've met with thousands of residents about the things that we want to see develop. So I want to thank you very much uh, for, for this. Um, okay, uh, the, the, I've asked um, that everyone take two minutes and talk about the the campaign platform. Yeah. Um, so we'll um, start with Mr. Carver again. My platform. My platform is people. I'm a people person. I care about people. I've cared about people all my life. I have spent my entire life advocating for the rights of people. Um, the District 8, as Brendan said, is diverse, diverse in so many ways, diverse in age groups. We have the most seniors per capita than any other district in HRM. Uh, in terms of economic backgrounds, we are the most diverse. In terms of cultural and ethnic backgrounds, we have the most. District 8 is, a, is an area that's under siege, under siege from development. We have developers coming into our area taking advantage of the fact that it was a low-income area with very little political clout, with no, no, no kind of connections in purchasing up lands and bringing in developments that are not, not compatible to the community in which they're coming. Uh, that is a huge problem. Uh, this city is going through a craze for development. You know, um, I've received the information from the Willow Tree Group, thank you very much, in terms of the need for units, housing units in Halifax, which is, they list at 800, and yet we're going to see 10,000 of them built. My concern is when the bottom falls out of it, how does that impact on the value of my home and the homes of the other people in the district? Uh, so I am very concerned around development and I believe that if a developer is requires a change to a bylaw or a zoning, that that developer should first go to the community 
come back to the city with a plan that's agreeable to the community and to themselves before they go to, to City Hall. Thank you very much. Anthony Kowalski. Well, my platform is simple. I want to feed, house, move, and empower. That's it. That is the tip of a very, very big and complex iceberg. Um, in terms of feeding, I want to have an access to all for good quality food. Where We live in an agriculturally self-secure province. If we wish it to be, it currently isn't, and we need to ensure that it is. And the city needs to work to have urban gardens, um, rooftop gardens, uh, urban farms, and free up rural land that is idle and get that working again so that we all have access to good food. I want to house the people. I want affordable housing to be a real concept in this city, especially as the centre plan is written. I want housing to be fit for purpose. Um, I don't want people to be living with rats, mice, with mould, with damp. I want fit-for-purpose housing, and I want a one-door policy where, as these new developments are built, people have access to them, not just in terms of affordability, but also in terms of social background and income. I want to move the people, integrated, effective transportation. I want commuter rail now with, with better transit, active transportation, bicycle lanes, and I want to empower people, jobs, digital, living wage, equality, inclusion, ECE, literacy, smart technology, 311 plus, cut the red tape, tax reforms, a livable city, our little easy. Mr. Murphy. Thank you. Um, development is... Uh, in their area over the last few years has increased and we've watched the center plan um, kind of reveal itself uh, in that time and uh, you know it's uh, if you're going to have a plan then you should have a moratorium on development while you decide what the plan is going to be 2.4 policy uh, of the city if we still have it I think we do it's supposed to have, protect the character of a neighborhood and the characters of the neighborhoods are not being protected I just have a little quote here. Many seniors waiting, wanting to continue to live in areas they helped build and are finding increasingly difficult to meet extra costs while managing on fixed incomes. This issue of council should be addressed. And I think that's something I put out uh, about eight years ago. And you have, what you're having is you're having, yes, development moving in. People who have lived in a comfortable neighborhood for a long time can't afford to live there anymore. And prospecting is going on too. Bilby Street, uh, what really was a big tipping point for me to decide to run again was the street I live on where a visionary church, United Memorial Church, has been sold. And that's an R1 zone. My father didn't have a moth like I have. But he was a quiet man, but he went up and down our street uh, in 1988 to protect our R1 neighborhood. And uh, they want to put a seven-story building. I don't think developers should be meeting with any residents without having staff there because they'll come back and say, oh, we love it. We thought it was great. We also have to have a proper use strategy. 
protect our, our younger people, give them things that they a chance and opportunities to, to work within the community. And that's when I was on council, we did. We actually have recreation centers hire people within the community, and that worked out very well. You also have mentorship that goes on there too. Uh, recreation facilities, safety and security is always important. And also uh, transportation. What happened to have smaller buses that would connect the north with the south of the peninsula? That was an idea way back when, and uh, I think it just didn't happen. Those are some issues, but I have a lot more. Thank you. Chris Poole. Thank you. Um, I've been knocking on a lot of doors, obviously, over the last few months, and I think when, when you know, with talking with everyone that's sitting up here at the table, you're going to find a common theme. Uh, representation, development, affordable housing, uh, the center plan, communication, uh, we're... we're Every single person sitting here wants to, wants to do the right thing for District 8. Um, you know, some of the big issues I have that's been happening, as, as Pat and everyone else has been saying so far, is development. It's been a big issue here probably within the last 10 years or so. Uh, there's, been a, there's been a lot of be people being pushed out of the north end of Halifax um, because of property values skyrocketing. Uh, property taxes going in increasing year after year after year. Uh, we're, you know, HRM by, you know, itself is sprawling uh, dramatically. Uh, you know, right now what we're doing is we're sprawling by just by building homes when really we should be building complete communities. Um, you know, we're talking about the center plan. I think the center plan is very important. I wish more people were, were paying more attention to it. You know, I've gone to a lot of the meetings and it's, you know, the, the attendance has been well, but it's knocking on the doorsteps. There's, there's, a, there's a bunch of people that don't really know what's exactly happening with it. Um, transit and active transportation, you know, I'd love to take a look at the transit system. Right now, currently our transit system, you know, if, if you leave my house in the north end of Halifax, there's no way to take a bus to a grocery store that's within, within easy distance. You'd actually either have to go, go to the far end of the peninsula or you have to go to Halifax Shopping Centre. So people that live in Mulgrave Park or the far end of north end of Halifax don't have access to, access to um, you know, food, to grocery stores that's easy and accessible. You know, imagine yourself as a parent with, with children in tow, you know, and you don't have a car. You know, that's, that's easily a 20-minute walk. Um, so we need to look at the transit system. We need to look at active transportation, um, you know, dealing with bikes. Um, there's, you know, there's all kinds of issues. And also communication between the different levels of government. Right now, there's, there's, they don't appear to be talking. And that's a big issue. We have the center plan happening. We have school reviews happening. And really, they should be sitting at the, t at the table together coming up with a solid plan. Because if you want to increase population, then you need schools. Mr. Smith. Thank you. Uh, you hear a lot of commonalities between all of us because we are all trying to represent the same district. Um, the most important thing is how, how do we want to do this? How do we want to approach it? And how do we want to get things done? For me, we, we need to approach affordable housing in a way that includes residents, and as Irvin mentioned before, community development agreements where a developer has to put some type of aspect into the development, into the community, whether that's through, through um, the cost of the building, how much they buy it from the city, or whether that's, whether that's through space or, or rent, whatever that may be, but there needs to be something that's driven by the community and giving them the opportunity to say, this is what we want. We need to, we need to make sure that youth have an opportunity and making recreation free is something we can do. We don't make any money from recreation fees in terms of registration. We can take some of that budget and, and, and take that cost away that will give young people an opportunity to actually be involved and give them something to do. We also need to think about being safe in our communities. I, I have a young daughter. 
who goes to school, which is a big development happening right next to school at St. Joseph McKay. Street safety is very important. There are kids who have to walk in the street to cross the street to school. So we need to make sure our streets are safe. We need to make sure that community policing matches what the community wants. So we need to make sure that when we have community policing that we have residents saying what we need and how we want it done and not them deciding how they want to do things. And we also need to make sure that we grow responsibly. Of course, development is, is important, but also that growth needs to include residents, whether you're in the North End or West End. We know that North End, most people are saying affordable housing. We know in the West End, a lot of uh, families are saying that they, their property taxes puts a strain on them. So we need to understand what's happening in different dynamics of the, the district and make sure that we have people on council that can drive these, these ideas and these concerns and make them into actual plans and achieve them. Thank you. Mr. Summerhalder. Uh, so I want to just break this down uh, really quickly about uh, how I see the, the role of councillor work uh, in between just two, two big buckets, the first being representation and the other one being uh, around policy and governance. So the first uh, around representation... There we go, representation, pardon me. Uh, so, so there's this one. There's kind of the, the inbound representation. So your counselors need to answer your calls and your counselors need to answer your emails. And when you have an issue, if you hit a roadblock with the city, your counselor needs to be that first person that uh, navigates that for you. And that's something that I take very seriously and it's something that I've uh, done a lot with with my work with Downtown Halifax Business Commission. So that's the inbound side. Then there's this outbound side. Now, it's not always the case that when you hold a public consultation that the folks that come to the public consultation are actually all of the people in the city. In fact, that's rarely the case. So when we realize that we are missing voices in our community, it's absolutely important that we go out and we actively find them. So that's the other side to representation that I think is really important. Uh, I, I do have a couple of quick points, and they, they will overlap. Sensible and smart development that respects the character of our neighborhoods. Housing that is affordable for people living at all income levels and at all stages of life. Fast, convenient, uh, predictable public transit. The, the maximum penalty for missing the bus should only be 15 minutes. Otherwise, people are going to choose other modes of transportation. Right now, it could be a half an hour or an hour. Active transportation infrastructure. Let's have a complete protected bike lane network in the entire peninsula. Growing population, uh, renewed commercial taxes, environmental leadership, complete, complete communities. These are obviously all very important. What we need to do is we need to make sure that we do have a Halifax of the future in mind, and then we look at all of our policies, and we make sure that all of our policies point to the very same future. And I'll give you a very, very fast example of this. Here's Quinpool Road. So here's, a gro here's the existing growth, growth or uh, height limits for Quinpool, Quinpool Road. Here's a five-story potential limit. Here's an 11-story potential limit. Now, of course, these are very different from one another, and there might be an aesthetic, but the difference between 5 and 11 is not just how it looks, but it's also around land economics. Local ownership is almost impossible at 11 stories. At five, it is still possible. So these are some aspects that I think we really need to consider when we look at how we're going to develop our city. The last thing I'll say is uh, we need to lead with openness, transparency, and trust. <coughs> oh, everyone's really got a bug. See ya. <laughs> You're listening to an electoral debate featuring candidates running for District 8 in October's Halifax Municipal Election. The debate took place on Tuesday, September 27th, at the Rose School of Business at Dalhousie University. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, now over to Tim Bousquet of the Halifax Examiner. Sorry to be the guy uh, buzzing you guys along. You loved it. You loved it. <laughs> There's more to come. Throats have uh, never been so clear. But no one's timing me, so I have a bit of time. Um, first of all, thanks for coming. And... Uh, uh, these are often awkward affairs, but I feel like I got to know you guys just in those two questions 
a little bit more. So I think it's been productive already, so I appreciate it. I prepared like this giant question because I was allowed one question. Um, uh, so forgive me for this. Um, but as I uh, have been thinking about this election for the past month or so, it's really difficult as a reporter to, as a single one reporter, to encompass everything going on in every district. So it occurred to me that my goal in this election was to insert one idea into the election and hope that it takes. And that one idea is to get a living wage ordinance passed. So that's uh, my, my big pointed uh, goal for this election. But in terms of this district, this plays into that, and, and I believe. It's a district in transition. Um, I'm going to read a little bit here. But we've talked about gentrification in the Gudgeon Street area, or lots of people have talked about it. Uh, but, but there are economic and demographic changes in the entire district. So along Maynard Street and the uh, Ilaville, I never say that word right, uh, corridor, there's all these uh, what I call the crappy little apartment buildings going up. They're like seven to ten story buildings uh, with exactly zero uh, redeeming architectural va value. Uh, my, for ten years now, I've, I've said that that building at the corner of K Street and Gaijin Street, the southwest corner there, uh, across from the from the market is the god ugliest building in all of Halifax, uh, but but uh, there's been a lot of competition, and uh, so you know. But it's not just that either. It's not just Gaijin Street or that sort of near North End area. It's uh, we're seeing all sorts of huge buildings pop up on Roby Street and now Young Street. And then truly monstrous structures proposed up to 29 stories for Quinpool and the old St. Pat's High School site. And as I see it, in terms of impact on the city, this is a huge change in about a decade and with no apparent end in sight. That's, it's as big as the change from horses to cars or electricity. I mean, it's huge, right? Neighborhoods are changing. We've got home values are affected, housing affordability. Some of you have talked about it. There are issues about density, shadows, parking, transit, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I also think that, that a good number of these buildings are, are so poorly built uh, that they'll become substandard in just a few years, and that will bring another whole host of, of, of issues to the district. Uh, if there's a question in all of this, <laughs> it's – do you comprehend just how profound this change is? And if so, what do you propose to do in terms of managing the transition, protecting existing residents and neighborhoods, and especially in terms of assuring social and economic cohesion, i.e. a living wage ordinance, for example, or, or things along that, and ensuring development is high quality and to scale? I know every one of you is going to bark out center plan, but I'm old enough to remember HRM by design coming through and all the insurance assurances that we were given. And yet we have this obscenity of the Nova Center that is just destroying our downtown, uh, both visually, economically, and socially. So I'm not one to, to uh, place bets that, that the center plan is really the, the ticket to good development. Uh, so I hope your answer includes something more than a promise to repeat HRM by design. You got that? Are we ambitious individually or as a group? I, I, uh, 
think the idea is individually, right? Is, is yeah, that, you'll yeah. each you'll each get a get a turn, and and I'm going to reverse the alphabetical order yeah, now because okay. that's, you, you want to that's that. apparently a thing we do. Can we hear the question one more time? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> The, the question part of it. The takeaway was, uh, do you comprehend just how profound the change is? And if so, what do you propose to do in terms of managing the transition, protecting existing residents and neighborhoods, especially in terms of social and economic cohesion, and ensuring development is of high quality and to scale? Brendan Summerholder. All right, last is first. So I guess the first part of the question is, do you comprehend the hugeness of the change? Yes. I do. Uh, so, I mean, the, the, certainly the Halifax has not undergone a development boom that's been uh, quite, quite like this, uh, well, really, really, really ever. Uh, and and if, maybe since the explosion when there was kind of forced redevelopment that had happened uh, in our area. Um, and I think well, a lot of what we're seeing right now is a result of extremely outdated uh, development plans. So what we're seeing is developers saying, and, and oftentimes rightly, that the existing rules don't exactly make sense for the area. And that's often true. Sometimes it's owned for two or three stories and maybe four, five, or six make more sense. But what we're seeing is developers are, and they have a prerogative too, ask for as much as they possibly can. And of course, council's job in that is to be the counterbalance, is to say what does the community want. And for, hopefully between those two parties come up with something that respects the character of the neighborhood. That hasn't happened. There are a couple of policy uh, things that we could do. First of all, council needs to stand up uh, to the, the development community generally. Uh, not stand up to, but really uh, communicate with and just not give them the first thing that they ask for. That's not how negotiation ought to work. Uh, the other thing I would say is that, yes, indeed, center plan is a good opportunity. I think with HRM by design, the big flaw with Nova Center was, in fact, writing this huge exception, this huge unnecessary and unwarranted exception into HRM by design. If it wasn't written in there, it would not be part of uh, our downtown right now, and that would be better. Um, or, or it would be lower, it would, it would be keeping uh, within the character. So I do think that uh, center plan, which is going to be one of the biggest, most important policies coming to the next council, this is one of those things we need to make sure doesn't happen uh, in center plan, is that no ridiculous exemptions uh, get written in such that uh, all of the good work and consultation that we've done become ignored. And lastly, I'll talk about a living uh, wage ordinance because you asked about it specifically. I do support that. Thank you. I support a living uh, wage ordinance uh, for HRM employees and contractors. Acorn Nova Scotia has asked for $20.10 per hour. I support that. It makes sense. It wouldn't be a huge burden to uh, the HRM budget. It would help those most in need and it would be leading from the front, which we ought to do. Thank you. Lindell Smith. Thank you, Tim, for your question when we got to it. Uh, so really, it, it, it just comes down to policy and engagement for me. Um, when the policy doesn't doesn't match what the people want and when the people are not able to comprehend the policy then you just have disasters of what's happening now and what we're seeing is is development and growth which growth is important to to, to how our, our our city grows but also we need to make sure that growth matches our neighborhoods and if we're going to see a 29-story building next to a five-story building when when staff and residents say hey that's not well not technically next to a staff a five-story building but just in general when staff say we don't want this and council still decide to prove that, we have, we have a problem. And we need to ensure that we have council members that not only look at the bottom line, not only look at what would be helpful to, to grow or get more people into the city, the core, or just in general, but we need to have councilors that understand what the people are saying and what's needed to, to sustain our neighborhoods and keep our heritage. Heritage is important. We are an old city, and we do need to grow, but we also need to preserve a lot of our history in Irving can speak about Africville. That, that, that was historic, and we lost that because of, of how our city decided to, to plan things. And unless we have people that really, need to, that really want to listen 
but also look at the stats and look at at what's happening and take that into consideration and do the work, then we can grow in a way that's that's manageable. manageable. Um, and yes, I do support the living wage. And we also need to look at bringing a lot of our services in-house and allowing our, our city to take care of these, these services so we can see better better services for, for elderly who want to leave their homes but can't get out, who have services, home care, that can't get into their homes because of, of snow rem- not being removed. We need to see garbage being removed. We need, to see, we need to see construction actually being done and not people landing, leaning on shovels. So we just need a lot of things to happen, and we need councils that believe in that. Thank you. Mr. Poole. Thank you. Wow. Um, so part A to the question, yeah, yes, I do understand the, the, the significance of it to, uh, to District 8. Uh, how do I plan to, to, you know, to manage that? Well, first part would be communication, uh, speaking with the residents of District 8, speaking with the local groups of District 8, you know, uh, places such as Mulgrave Park, Uniac Square, uh, North End Business Association, Mi'kmaq Friendship Center, uh, um, North End Health Clinic, and, and so on, uh, you know, to, to talk to them and find out what kind of development and what kind of amenities they'd like to see in the development that's happening with, within the area. Um, you know, ideally, I'd like to see, you know, uh, changes happen so that when, when developers are putting in buildings, that a certain percentage of that needs to be affordable housing. And, and what I mean by affordable housing is that after you pay for your rent or for your mortgage payment or what have you and your bills, you can still afford to live. Um, I think there's a lot of people in District 8, unfortunately, not just District 8, but other districts throughout HRM that are unfortunately house poor or rent poor or mortgage poor, uh, that, which is a really big problem. Um, and, and also, as you know, if I'm elected as your counselor, I would continue to communicate on a weekly, on a regular basis with, uh, with the residents of District 8 to find out what's on their minds and, you know, hear their concerns and bring that forward to, um, to council. Uh, I guess secondly, you know, you have to start bringing in policy to make sure that, you know, development is being done correct and being done right. Yes, I understand. I've, I'm, I'm old enough to, to remember uh, HRM by design as well, and uh, I was right in, right in the thick of that with, um, when I was on the school board and doing school reviews, and, you know, St. Mary's, for example, was a big part of the HRM by design for the South End. Uh, you know, we have to have communication on the different levels of government as well. Um, you know, smart, sustainable development. You know, we have to, if, you know, putting up a six or seven story building next door to, you know, residential homes or right next door to an elementary school where there's kids playing literally three feet away uh, makes absolutely no sense. We need to. Oh, sorry. Thanks. Patrick Murphy. Um, uh, just a couple of, you know. The two bridges, which are the economic engines of um, this great natural harbor, uh, have both 35 million crossings, I believe. And um, that means that the 35 million crossings would go through District 8. So we've been under stress for a long time. There's 3,800 uh, cars, I believe, that go down onto K Street, onto Gottingen, into Staticona every day, back and forth. Because you have Windsor Park. You have you have uh, you also have Willow Park. You have Canadian Force Base at Kona, HMCS Dockyards. So these are busy military areas, and that's a part of the mix of uh, a lot of the uh, of of the uh, employment uh, that employs a lot of people outside, on in District Eight, but also outside District Eight. And I think that just that that rationale of that movement of traffic should be noted, um, and development, proper development that fits the neighborhood. Um, this you know. To have things done, maybe because my experience being on council, I never lost a vote on Bloomfield, and still looks the same as it did 
after I left. So, um, you know, we had, a, we, had, we, had the, we had McKay lines looking at height. We had a whole plan for Bloomfield. And eight years later, it's not being used as a proper place. And uh, I do think 400 units is a little too much density for that site. Uh, but it was supposed to be restored, two buildings, greenway through, uh, bring the artists, artists back. Uh, had a fantastic uh, uh, floor for floor hockey and also the uh, seniors that were there. And there's missed opportunities over the last eight years for, for that situation. And I'll, I'm, I'm going to make that one of my priorities to make, get that rolling again. But the thing, the thing is about you have to have support of other counselors to make things happen in your neighborhood. You have to have a working relationship with other counselors. We only have two and a half representatives for the Peninsula Halifax. Okay? So you have to have a working relationship with those other counselors. And if it's a Steve Adams, if it's a Russell Walker, whoever it is today, that you have to have them to work. Uh, your uh, ordinance uh, with 1050 would be $21,000. $15 an, uh, an hour would be $31,000 uh, a year. I don't know if we have the power to force people to pay, tell people to pay, but I, I, I would support your, your uh, ordinance. Thank you. Anthony Kowalski. First, I support that mandate as well for... Um, uh, um, um, for, for that um, on the basis that it's a, a, a great sort of uh, incremental step towards social justice and uh, equality and raising the bar and perhaps it can force um, uh, private entities into increasing their wages as well and I know that in some jurisdictions when companies increase their wages they get a far better return on that additional investment um, there's an elephant in the room with this whole issue of the development and future of the city and um, I'll raise this publicly now it's one of my concerns is that it's not only the quality of the buildings that are currently being constructed and the lack of an overall plan as you can tell from my voice I come from a jurisdiction London where everything is minutely controlled where your neighbour cannot put up a, an extension that doesn't meet it's not fit for purpose, where it's brash, ugly, oversized, bulky. We need to have planning regulations that dictate how the city looks so that this already beautiful city remains such. And um, as, as we develop, because we need to, I am for development, but it has to be sustainable and the correct form. But the other part of this elephant is the fact that I don't want to see half-finished buildings. I've seen boom and bust in Europe. I've seen it in Britain. I've seen cranes that stop. What if the cranes stop here? We need to be prepared as a council and a city for financial things that come down the road. We have to think in a global sense. We have to think of what might be happening south of the border um, and be prepared for a recession um, that could affect construction and I don't want to see half-finished buildings and that's something I'll be working to preempt and avoid. Irvine Carvery. Um, first of all, District 8 is comprised of unique neighborhoods. There's no one fix for all of District 8. We have unique neighborhoods that have to be looked at from their unique perspective. Do I understand the consequences of development? You're doggone right I do. I grew up in Uniac Square. When I left Uniac Square when I got married, I was able to purchase a house on Maynard Street. People living in Uniac Square at the time were able to, as their income improved, 
able to leave Uniac Square and go out into the community and rent decent, affordable housing. What I have seen over the years is now Uniac Square is an island unto itself. That no longer is that possible for people to do what I did. We need to be conscious of that, and it's through development and the escalation of property values that this has occurred. So when we talk about affordable housing, we really need to look at affordable home ownership. That's my key. District 8 has its fair share and more of affordable housing. If we're going to do affordable housing, let's share it with the rest of HRM. That's my point. In terms of a living wage, uh, Tim, it's a, it's a concept that it's very easy to say, yes, I agree with that, because it really does sound nice. I'm a person who likes to have information to make informed decisions. I need a lot more information around the living wage and the impact it would have on HRM's budget, because when we talk about forcing contractors to pay livable wage, that cost is going to be moved on to us, the taxpayers. So we need, I, need, I need a lot more information, but in terms of the principle of a living wage, of course, I support that. But I just need more information. I like to make informed decisions. I don't like to make just purely emotional decisions. During my time as chair of the Halifax Regional School Board, it did take a lot of information in order to manage that group. Thank you. Okay, um, so now we're going to move to the open forum part of the evening. So I'll be the boatmaster here, and, and uh, if you would like to ask a question um, of one or of the candidates or the panel, just uh, catch my attention and I'll mark you down here on my handy form and we can start. So who would like to start us off? I've been watching the city, the politics and all of this for a very long time. Uh, my question comes from the observation that we have a whole bunch of silos. Silos between different constituencies at the board level, at, you know, where you're going. Uh, not all the councillors talk to each other. And they don't seem to talk to or listen to city staff. And city staff seems to exist in huge silos that don't talk to each other. I would like to hear how you guys are going to address, if you're elected, these issues of Lateral communication, communication to your employees, rather than saying, oh, we're going to communicate wonderfully with our constituents. Yeah, that's a big part of your job, but the real part of your job to be effective means talking to enough other people that you can get the job done for us, and that's not going to be done just in District 8. Thank you. Oh, my name is Peter Zimmer. I live on Willow Street. I've lived in the city for 45 years. Anthony Kowalski. I've discovered as a new Canadian in the nine years that I've lived here, it, it seems that when I lived out on the Fundy Shore, attempting to set up a business out there, um, living and integrating with a rural community, silo thinking was uh, the methodology that I felt had kept those communities back for decades and is currently leading to their demise in a substantive way and as a um, as a resident out there as a business person 
Um, just as someone who felt about the community there, I created a group called Shore, which was designed to unite all of the volunteer groups that were living in their silos, uh, distributing dollars between one and another, where it was basically the same common currency that people were touching maybe 10 times during a year. Um, the thing is, is that uh, that group was shot down by council, by a, a backward council that, um, and, and I hate to say this out there, that um, didn't understand the benefit of drawing everybody together under one group. As soon as that was kicked to the curb, one by one every group stepped aside. So, so I was just saying that that echoes right here. I was going to have a lot more to say, but <laughs> okay, another song. Mr. Carvery, would you like to, and or we'll work down the row, next? is that, or would you like to take a pass? Pardon? No, we can I, work I, down the I'd row like to alphabetically, Peter's, or we uh, can... Concern. I, I think it's a very legitimate uh, observation. Uh, I, during my time as chair of the Halifax Regional School Board, uh, it was a part of my responsibility to bring together silos, because there were a lot of silos within the Halifax Regional School Board. I think I was pretty successful in terms of dealing with those silos and bringing them together to understand that we're all there for students. My other experience in terms of uh, uh, working through silos and working through different levels is my, my negotiations with HRM in the settlement of the Africville question. I had to deal with each individual counselor in terms of talking to them about what our purpose was, what our intent was, to convince them to vote in favor of that settlement. So I have experience dealing with people. I have experience dealing with organizations uh, in, in terms of trying to be effective and getting things done. So, so I understand what you're saying, and it is a big, big challenge. Uh, but staff, one thing I want to say is that staff are staff. They're there to serve the people of Halifax. Um, I would not be led by the nose by staff, uh, as, as I wasn't with the staff at the Halifax Regional School Board. As I said earlier, I like information. I like to make informed decisions. I will go wherever I need to go to get the information I think is important for me to make an informed decision. So that's my experience in dealing with that, Peter, and how I would approach it as a counselor. Patrick Murphy. I think back to, uh, thank you, Peter, let me see you. Um, I think back uh, to a time when a report came to council and we've uh, found $160,000 to uh, uh, send the bells uh, for the health explosion bells that are on top of Fort Needham Hill uh, with fog, salt, air, whole thing, they get corroded. We had to send them down to, to Cleveland to get them properly tuned and fixed. And a report came to council, and they were actually, the work was done, but they were actually taking money from the budget in my area, right, the area I represent, not my area, the area I represent, and um, was going to give it to money at the Bicentennial Theater. So that's the area that was represented by Steve Stretch. So um, Steve didn't know this, this was coming to the council. I didn't know. So we talked about it because I don't know if the staff is going to expect us to start fighting about it in front of uh, the cameras or what. But we worked it out, and I said, our work is done, Steve. And I ended up taking, um, I think, uh, through HRM, two, three big busloads of seniors down there over time in the summertime through Ward 5 Neighborhood Center. Uh, and uh, Doug McDonald uh, and Longer Andrew Cox uh, went down there and visited the Bicentennial Theater. 
and um, saw some great sh- live shows down there. So they got their money. We got the money for the North End. We worked it out. And that's what you got to do. You got to work with people. But you also have to be a connector. You have to be a connector in this job to bring people together. And that's also staff and also to bring, bring policy together and also work with the taxpayer, which is the bottom line. Chris Poole. Thank you. Great question. Um, I'm going to uh, refer back to some of the stuff that uh, Irvin has said because I served on the school board along with Irvin uh, at the time when he was chair of the board. Uh, and he's absolutely right. There was times when we were on the board where we had to break down, we had to break down the silos between staff, uh, between departments, between staff and, and board members. Uh, it was extremely frustrating. I, and I think back to when uh, St. Joseph's Ale- Alexander McKay School uh, was potentially going to go up for review, and staff was adamant that the population was declining within that, that, that school zone. And, you know, I spent a great deal of time connecting with various school board members at the time and, you know, presenting the facts. You have to do your research. You have to take the information from staff because staff... Staff is a great resource for, for counselors and for school board members and for MLAs and MPs, but they're staff. They, they provide the information for you, but you as a counselor have to make, you have to take that information, you have to disseminate it. You have to ask the hard questions of staff, you know, ask why, don't accept. Um, it's always been done that way. I, that's one thing I couldn't stand. You always, have to, you always have to ask why and then take that information and make, you know, make the decision after speaking with the people that you know, you're going to be affecting, um, you know, communication is a big way of breaking down, you know, the silos as well. Uh, and another, another topic that uh, Irvin and I were, were big champions of, and unfortunately it hasn't seemed to have gone very far, is the hub school model. Um, you know, t- look, taking a look at community, uh, community schools. Mr. Smith. Thank you. It really comes down to two things. Um, meaningful engagement and, mean, and interpersonal relationships. When you think about it, if you don't have a relationship with the people that you're supposed to be working at with as a team, then you'll get nowhere. And as a counselor, your job is to, one, understand what your constituents and what your staff and what your other council members, how they feel about issues, but also build that relationship so you, can, you guys can understand how to work with each other. And, yes, that can be hard. We're all people. You can't control how someone does something. But if you build a relationship where you understand where that person stands and how they do things, then you can, you can get things done. I have experience working breaking down these silos with one of the projects that I'm currently working on called One North End, which focuses on bringing businesses and residents together and breaking that silo, figuring out how that relationship can work together. And with meaningful engagement through, these, through both of these parties, we're able to see why the businesses feel that that silo is there and why the residents feel, and then we can break that barrier down and then work together as one. And we've, we've done this, and we've got people employment, We've, we've seen businesses sponsor community members through just building that relationship and understanding what our place are, what our place is in our community. So it just it really comes down to relationships and understanding what is needed to be done in that situation and how to do it. Brendan Summerholder. Uh, <coughs> excuse me. It, it, it is a good question. So, I mean, obviously a lot of the uh, things that happen at uh, City Council uh, don't just happen when the councillor presses uh, yay, nay, or abstain uh, in the booth. Actually, you can abstain. You have to literally leave the chambers, which is funny to watch when people do that. I'll never leave the chambers to avoid a vote. Uh, but a lot of this work actually happens uh, beforehand. And staff reports don't tend to come from nowhere. Uh, often they come because somebody's championing, championing something or a group of people are championing something. And if you're plugged in and if you're active and if if you're at City Hall and 
if you're talking to people, you'll see these intersection points when these reports are being created, these ideas are being pushed forward. And you could actually insert yourself as a counselor into these conversations. I have some experience with this. Uh, so I'm director of communication, or director of marketing now uh, at Downtown Halifax Business Commission. And last year, I led the Argyle Shared Street Project. That's where we painted the street, uh, closed it down for six weekends in a row, put public infrastructure, partied it, did the whole thing. Now, that wasn't just for fun, although it was fun. The purpose of that was to do a pilot project to prove to various departments in the city that a shared, closable street in the heart of our city can be possible, and it won't result in mass pedestrian death. In fact, we had zero uh, incidents, and in fact, what we saw was slower moving traffic when the street was open, and uh, more strollers in the downtown than we'd ever seen before. So this came from collaboration between businesses, a very reluctant city bureaucracy, uh, and the organization that I was representing, the not-for-profit Downtown Halifax Business Commission. So yes, uh, I know that progress is possible on things that seem difficult. All you have to do is find the people, put the right people in the same room who have the right attitudes, all looking uh, towards the same goal. You're listening to an electoral debate featuring candidates running for District 8 in October's Halifax municipal election. The debate took place on Tuesday, September 27th at the Rose School of Business at Dalhousie University. Who's next? Come on down. Hey, everybody. Uh, My name is Erica Fraser, and this won't come as a surprise to most of you, but I want to talk about food. How would you, as a city councillor, use municipal resources not only to increase access to good, healthy, and just food, but engagement in the decision-making process around the production of food, who gets paid to grow the food, how it's distributed, those kinds of things. I don't want to hear about more community gardens. I will give you some clues. Land use bylaws, food retail, food production, those kinds of things. Thanks so much. Start down. <laughs> He's right. We did start down at that end. We'll start down at this end with Mr. Samuel. Let's start with Chris Poole. Chris, over to you. <laughs> Thanks, Erica. Um, that's uh, another great question. Um, you know, over the last little while, as you know, like we had the the, um, the mobile food market, uh, which has been a great resource using using the Metro Transit bus. I'd like to see more of those things happen. Uh, you know, I spent a, a lot of time down in Mulgrave Park, and I was um, partnered. And I'm, and I'm going to reference it. It's a community garden, but it's it's a project that was done in Mulgrave Park with a different plan in mind. Um, uh, it was with Paige Farrow, who's a good friend of mine, with through uh, Progress in the Park. And uh, we developed uh, community plots within Mulgrave Park that allowed family uh, families to plant their own vegetables and everything and grow that over the summertime and then harvest it and take care of it and everything. Ideally, the plan, you know, with the conversations I've had with Paige was to eventually put in a year-round greenhouse to allow people to start growing fruits, you know, fresh fruits and vegetables all year long so they can have full access to that. You know, changing bylaws and land use bylaws so that when you start uh, allowing, you know, pop-up markets to happen on, um, you know, on, on, on vacant uh, city plots would be a great idea. Uh, I'd love to see the um, the mobile market multiply and be a, a year-round thing on a constant basis. I think that's a great program. Um, you know, we need to change transit uh, so that people have easier access. And we were talking about this earlier today. You know, where it literally would take somebody from Mulgrave Park or you know, right, right next door to me, twenty you know, twenty plus minutes to walk to the superstore on Young Street, which is uh, virtually impossible to do if you have kids in tow and you're trying to bring back a grocery order. Mr. Murphy. Thank you. Thanks. Um, you know, the processing of food and processed food 
stay away from it. But I, I think, you know, HRM uh, could also be proactive in teaching how people how to garden. And I'm a gardener, okay? So I'm the gardener in the family where I live. And, you know, even having a small plots in your backyard, and it's fun, right? So that, that, that's something that people think, oh, it's so hard. But tomatoes, whatever, right? Um, and also, um, you know, uh, Hope Blooms is a great, well-known organization now, isn't it? And it all started in greenhouses in the back of St. Patrick's Church. And that's where the hope started to bloom. And uh, before they had their nice and fancy little spot they have now, which is great. But, uh, um, and it just shows, that shows, you know, how something, that a small idea can become such a major, great thing. Um, I don't know top of the community gardens, but there was quite a community garden up along where the, uh, uh, the water reservoir is on top of, uh, on top of Roby Street. And, and if you've seen more, more, more gardens pop up, look outside our, our largest hospital in the region. But I, I think just giving the people the tools to do something they think they can't do. And also, years ago, my father used to go to a place called Damaged Goods. Superstore started doing that again. Maybe if the, the banana is a little too, too ripe and it's just about to be thrown into the compactor or the organic waste. You know, there's an opportunity there because Chris alluded to this, but... We all talk about different silos. We never talk about the working poor. The people that pay and just get their bills paid, they feed their children, but they're on the edge. No one ever, you ever hear in the media talk about the working poor, right? So, you know, maybe you know opportunities from the private sector to, to have, have food that could distribute that. Oh, <laughs> Sorry, Chris, you're cutting me off. Uh, Mr. Smith. Thank you, Erica. So, disclaimer, I am not a food access justice expert, um, but I definitely believe in the access to food. We do have food deserts in our district and around HRM, which need to be addressed. And like what Erica said, land use is one of the ways to do that by ensuring that when something is being built, we know that there should be an access to food in that place. As we know, on Godson Street, that used to be a Sobeys, but the way that that land use was 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 made that you couldn't put another grocery store there and it was in you when that when that was per, when that property was purchased it was purchased as an apartment building and as as of right so we need to make sure that that's, that doesn't happen and for me what i've always done and the way that i approach opportunities like this is to work with community stakeholders like erica um like like hope blooms like loaded ladles places that are focusing on this getting the information from them and then finding out how we can support them either through community government or whatever that may be figuring out how we can do it that way so i'm not going to sit here and pretend like i know exactly how to do that but being having the support of people like erica and all that community is what we need to do especially as a counselor you need to be able to to understand the issues through community engagement and through relationships so that you can make informed decisions and actually build on what's needed for those type of issues thank you mr summerholder Thanks very much, Erica. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I mean, food security is is an incredibly pressing issue in the district. We're up where, where I live by, and, and lots of us actually live uh, by, uh, near the Devonshire Arena area, it is indeed offensive that what was once an area that was serviced by a grocery store is now serviced by a convenience store, a liquor store, 
and a Boston pizza. Uh, it, it doesn't really work for the community at, at large. So I've been reading about the, uh, the, the Halifax Food Policy uh, Alliance is a group that's been looking at this issue a fair bit. And, and they do recommend some things that I, I think make a lot of sense. First of all, yes, indeed, restrictive zoning uh, issues are, are one of them. Those are the easy ones. Uh, so that's one of the things that we can do to help helps make the market uh, provide a little bit more. But we can't just wait for the market to provide uh, access to good, quality, affordable food. I do think public investment in this issue is important. Important. I do think that uh, creating uh, some kind of a community uh, investment uh, fund, an economic development fund for this particular uh, problem is uh, important. Uh, so the failure of the Carrot Community Co-op is actually a good case in point where uh, there, haven't, there have not been the supports necessary for something that would have been a great asset to the community. It was there. We had it. It wasn't supported properly, and the municipality could have done something there. We would have had some access to good, affordable food right there. So I do think we need to be proactive, and I do think we need to uh, pony up a little bit. If we see areas in uh, the district or in the municipality <clears throat> at large that are underserviced by good access to food, we need to go and fix that. Mr. Carvery. Oh, thank you very much. Um, just some thoughts on, on it. Does anybody um, know how much food goes to waste from our Navy, from our Coast Guard? I've seen it where tons of food because they haven't used it all, it just gets thrown into the garbage. We need to find a way to get that good food to the people who need it. Growing food in agriculture is a science. I'd like to see it taught in our schools. Education is the key. As chair of the Council on African-Canadian Education, I have approached Hope Blooms to put together a program that we could perhaps fund where they take their program into the schools to teach the students the science of agriculture. I think it's important. I think we need to start with our school-aged children to, to get them to understand the importance of food and that it's not just something you go into the store and buy off the shelf. They need to understand where that comes from. In District 8, there are empty lots that have sat empty for 45 years. Consider how much produce could have been grown on those vacant lots over a 45-year period. And yet you have Parker Street Food Bank coming out to the public saying we are down on, on, on supplies for people in need. We have Feed Nova Scotia, the same thing, and yet we don't take advantage of the, of the, of the resources that are right in our community. But my overall thing, I, I really honestly believe that we need to do it with education. Thank you. Anthony Kowalski. Thanks. Be beyond education, um, I I'm thinking there are st some strategic issues involved here. And as I've said earlier, this is an agriculturally self-secure province, if we wish it to be. And um, I believe that the city and HRM need to be leaders if the province isn't. And one of the solutions is um, immigration in terms of if we can't get the kids of uh, the, the generations of farmers who farmed the land in HRM and the rest of the province, if we can't get them to, to stay and farm the land, perhaps we ought to parachute in a new 
immigrant class that comes here from Poland, um, Hungary or wherever, Eastern Europe, where they've, they've come before and they've gone to Britain um, to farm farms that are, are failing or fading. So there are strategic issues that we can do, along with all of these great ideas that we've discussed here, community gardens, sorry to drop that there, but um, you know, th there's a bigger picture as well that we can be thinking, and it would be great to see HRM as an agrarian leader. Now, it sounds a bit crazy, and we're talking about development and all the rest of it for, for most of this debate so far, but maybe this is something that we should um, explore with sort of um, uh, municipally owned or tenured land that is then rented or, or whatever to um, farmers who can come in and create this food. So this is long-term, this isn't ma magic buses, this is long-term, but we need to be thinking long-term as well. Thank you very much. Um, next question, would you like to come down to the mic, sir? My name is Pete Lavelle, I live in the North End. Uh, I'd like to start with an announcement. The, the Bloomfield Neighborhood Residents Association will be uh, doing the same thing a week from tomorrow night uh, at Northwood, 7 p.m. Wednesday, October 5th, we'll be having a, another District 8 Candidates Forum. Um, my question, um, I have to use an example. Well, here's the example. Um, some months ago, the um, Chief Administrative uh, Officer of the city seamlessly transitioned between uh, being the Chief Administrative Officer to being an executive um, at, a, at a development company. And I, the obvious question is, what would you do to stop this? And, and you, you can answer with that, you know, you can answer that question if you like. But beyond that, I'd like to hear what people think about what this means, about what a lot of us see as the inappropriate relationship between moneyed interests and City Hall. And by City Hall, I mean some councillors, uh, and I also mean some staff. And, and I think that that, that kind of egregious um, event was only the tip of an iceberg. And I'd be interested in hearing the, the potential councillors' thoughts on that matter. Thank you. Okay, I'd like to start down this end of this, this okay. Brendan Summerholder. Uh, thank you for the question. Of course, the uh, instance that you're talking about where the CAO uh, went to uh, immediately go and uh, head up a division of Clayton <coughs> Developments uh, is not the best optics in the world, absolutely. I think there needs to be a cooling off period for any senior municipal staff before they go into any uh, other organization that might do uh, big deals with the city. I think that's uh, entirely appropriate and it's, it's really too bad it wasn't in place uh, in this instance. Also, just the, the larger question about the inappropriate relationship between development generally and, uh, and the municipality, whether that be councillors, whether that be folks uh, within the municipality in the, in the bureaucracy. Uh, I think that's right. And I think uh, a lot of what we need to uh, see has to do with, I think electoral reform is, is a big part of this. So at the moment, Halifax is the wild, wild west in terms of uh, campaign financing. If the Donald J. Trump Foundation wanted to give Brendan Summerholder $1 million for my campaign, that could happen. And you wouldn't have to find out about it until 60 days after the election. So uh, something that I'm doing is I'm self-limiting uh, 
my donations to just individuals, no corporations or, or unions or that sort of thing. Maximum donation limit of $1,000 per person. Um, and also, I'm proactively publishing my donor list on my website. And I think I'm the only candidate in the district uh, that's doing that. Uh, someone can correct me uh, if I'm wrong. So I think some of these are reforms that we need to see so that when folks are going to vote for the representatives, they have the full information that they need. Uh, and I also think that we do need to create these conditions so that there isn't this unbelievably outsized influence between the development community uh, and that of uh, the rest of the municipality. Mr. Smith. Thank you, Peter. That was a great question. Most of that comes around stricter policy rules around conflicts of interest. Um, we should, we should have, we should early on knew that he was going to do that in terms of moving on to another company that that focuses on development. Um, and as a counselor, you're elected by the residents and the constituents, and you must. The, the onus is also on our residents making sure that we elect people who don't see development as a money grab for our city, but see development as, as a growth opportunity for our city. And yes, that may be, people may change when they get into office. They may say one thing when they're campaigning and, and, and say another when they're actually in the seat. But for me, it, it comes around policy and making sure that when, we, when something is on, on slate and if it's a conflict of interest, we should know um, there, that there could be that possible conflict of, of interest. And if later on we find out that maybe that your decision could have been construed because of your position that you are now in, then we should maybe look at how, how that, po that process went about. So for me, it's, it's just really looking at the inside, the policy, and how we can address if, if people are, are, are doing things or working on things that maybe might affect their decision-making skills. Thank you. Mr. Poole. Thank you. Um, sorry, I was just in thought there. Um, first of all, and the, with with the relationship between the um, with the CAO leaving and going to Clayton Development, absolutely wrong. Um, there needs to be a cooling off period, especially where you know a person in that position has such tight relations with a, with a developer, and then they go and jump over and, and basically become president of that comp you know of that division and run it. It's just completely inappropriate. Um, as far as uh, you know. Um, relationship between developers and staff uh, and counselors, you know, uh, Brendan and Lindell, you know, made sense. You know, developers are here. They actually are building our communities for us. There's a relationship there between city staff and city counselors working hand-in-hand -hand with developers to make sure that the communities that's being built and the, the building that's being developed fit within the communities. You still have to have a relationship with them. You can't just vilify them because they're developers and you know that on that whole topic you know if, if you if you ask me no a developer has not offered me money and i haven't taken any either so it's had, the option's not there but um i i'm just concerned that you know developers are being vilified when really they're they're there to help develop our communities it's you know they're not bad people business owners are not bad people um but, you know, like Lindell said, you know, with, along with policy, uh, you know, we have to make sure that the policy is there and the rules are there so that if you're a counselor and, then, you know, if there's a conflict there, you need to bring it forward and step away from the decision. Thank you. Mr. Murphy. Uh, thank you. Thank you, uh, Pete Lavelle, for your advocacy over the years. Um, the, uh, here's a word we don't hear too much about anymore. It's called a code of ethics. And um, I took business ethics once, I think, at St. Mary's. Um, and a code of ethics would be a, a standard level of uh, to live up to the job you have to do and also the parameters of what you can do. Now, um, 
individual talking about, I have to be honest, I've had many meetings with him, and he's always been a very fair-minded individual. Maybe he just got a, an offer he just couldn't refuse. I don't know. We don't know. But um, I, do ha- I do have to tell you, my, my biggest donor so far uh, to my campaign has been my mother-in-law. So um, that's what it's making for clarity. Um, but I think senior staff uh, and whoever wins this race uh, will have to go before a judge and uh, swear uh, an oath to office. That's, that's pretty serious stuff, isn't it? And I think people should be reminded of that, that you know, when, you have, when you're sworn in, that's what happens. And you should take it very seriously. Um, but you know, maybe a code of ethics for, for senior management, maybe a code of ethics for city councilors. That would be good, too. Something you have to swear before a judge and also know what, what you can do and you can't do. Um, uh, that's, that's what, how I'd look at it. And, I, and again, you can't control individuals and what they want to do if they're offered a great job somewhere or a new opportunity. I mean, as a city, as a council, you can't control that. I mean, it's, we do live in a free society, but the optics there probably aren't the greatest. But, uh, um, but I think a code of ethics would be a way to go for senior staff. Thank you very much. Mr. Kowalski. Yeah, I, th- I think I'll, I'd echo the, 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 the last speaker in the in sense of um, a code, um, a moral code. And in a very uh, open society, um, that word optics are, are highly important. And um, it, it's sad for me to see that there have been many occasions in, in recent years um, where that code has not been upheld and where people have done things in this city that um you know are are, are not just unfortunate but um they're um they're, they're not they're not that good now with with the fact of um pursuing a better offer or a good offer or a, a large paycheck yes by all means in a free market one should be able to to do that but there's also a common sense thing of is it the right thing to do and and part of like my ethos is that we need a bit more common sense in the way things operate in in our city and uh, that we we evolve to where we should be as as a sort of city and uh, with codes of ethics and the way we behave to each other you know and uh, we'll probably talk about some of those other things later but that's about all I can add Mr. Carvery. Thank you. Oh, my gosh, you're going to mention about a counselor maybe being bribed by a developer? Wow. There was a counselor not too long ago, I remember, raised this issue at city council and was threatened with a lawsuit and uh, had to back away from that position, and no one wanted to talk about it. I think it needs to be talked about. First of all, staff at, at city should not take a paperclip, should not be allowed to accept a paperclip from anyone doing business with the city. In terms of our senior staff at City Hall, sign the contract, and within the contract, you cannot go to anybody doing business with the city for five years after you leave employ here. And that's known up front, so you either take the job or you don't. But for five years after you leave this office, this position, you cannot go to work for someone who has been doing business with the city during your tenure. That's what I would want to see, and I would want to see that absolutely that no gifts of any kind be accepted, because not only must you not be coerced, but you must be seen 
to be not coerced. It's about a lot about the image. And a lot of us ordinary folks out there who look at things and all of a sudden we get this, we, we get this impression. And we have to find ways of not allowing that impression to happen in the first place. So I, I, would, I would advocate for, for a contract that clearly states five years after you leave the employee, you cannot go to work for anyone who has done substantive business with HRM and staff not accepting any gifts. Okay, uh, my name is Steve Parcell. I live on uh, Duncan Street um, in the West End. <coughs> I'm also a member of the Willow Tree Group, which has um, produced this fine leaflet So for everyone. Um, uh, actually, I was going to uh, ask a similar question as, uh, as Pete, but uh, maybe I'll move on to the next one here. Um, so, uh, I mean, this, this actually has to do with the grounds for development change. Um, now, one of the things in the municipal planning strategy is that you can break the bylaw only if there are major circumstances uh, have changed. Um, now, uh, the arguments for that that the developers have put forward uh, and staff have put forward have been very minimal. And really, there seems to be um, a kind of a short shrift uh, paid to, uh, to that sort of thing. Uh, so I guess my question would be, number three, uh, do you believe that circumstances across HRM have changed so drastically that land use bylaws should be disregarded? Okay, um, starting at the far end. Irvine Carvery. Absolutely not. Uh, bylaws are bylaws and they're there for the protection of the citizens and the integrity of our city. I don't believe that they should be changed unless council itself, not, it should, let me, let me qualify that. They should not be changed at the direction of a developer. If council as a body uh, determines that there are some changes needed through consultations with the public, yes, it should happen. But never, never, on, because of the direction of a developer, because of the direction a developer wants to take on a project, those bylaws should stay in place and they should be adhered to. Um, you know, talking about it, a concern I have is around speculation, around developers purchasing land within HRM, putting together a development agreement, which will see the value of that land rise, and then subsequently selling it to get the profit made just through the, the rise in value, which has a negative impact on my property value in my house, which means I pay more taxes. I have a serious problem with that. Anthony Kowalski. Well, I tried to listen diligently to the question and um, I understand where it's come from. And I, I, of course, do not think that um, bylaws should be disregarded. Um, however, I do think that as we um, create the centre plan, as, as we do this, as we look at issues like Homes Not Hondas and and potentially another one that's happening there, which is PNL are purchasing um, the majority of the houses opposite um, where, where some of the demolition has occurred on May Street, and are, are holding that for a purpose that is not in public uh, domain. So I will not be popular with PNL by saying that today. Um, the thing is, is that bylaws as they stand, I believe, to be. Um, not fit for purpose. I don't believe that they are in many ways accurate and relevant to the complexities of the way cities are developing globally. 
And I would like to see that our city, that our HRM, and this includes the rural component as well as the urban one, revisits bylaws in a very strategic way and makes a lot of them more flexible um, and more adaptable and reactive so that the law is there to protect the build environment and all sorts of domestic and rural environments but it is flexible and can move very rapidly with the times. Mr. Murphy. Yeah, I went down your circular about a half hour ago and uh, I put no by that one. Um, just want to make a little point. There's a project called the St. Joseph Square which was one of the church I used to attend was on that property <clears throat> and staff decided that the green space for that corner would make up the Hydrostone Park, which actually became a park during 2004 or 2008, and uh, also because we have green space at Fort Needham. So that is the green space they included with that project. I also went down to the Review Design Committee meeting, which I thought was one of the most dysfunctional meetings I ever saw. You asked if, if councillors should go and view a, a site they're voting on. I suggest some of that design committee should go down and view what they're deciding on, okay? Because it was a very dysfunctional meeting. He, uh, the, the, the 13 changes, I tried to phone the, uh, the developer on that project, and you know, most of you know who he is, and uh, uh, they were getting rid of the trees. Uh, these are long-aged trees, you know, the umbrella of life that we have. And um, anyway, uh, there was actually quite a talk at that meeting about the trees, but the 13 uh, changes to that site um, were not seen by the public. They were seen by this committee, and then it went to staff. And so there's, there's a dysfunctionality in the system, okay? And um, anyway, I, I think it has to stop. Thank you. Mr. Poole. Thank you. Uh, I think you're probably going to get the same answer from everyone sitting here. No, the, the bylaws are there for a reason. Um, and just, just just to add to what uh, Pat just said about about the St. Joseph Square project, and, and including on the including adding to that green space, there's the step back of that's um, facing the facing the school. That's up of what about twenty feet. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Yes. And it steps back thirty no. feet, and they have green space there as well. But you know, I'm, I'm surprised they consider that even and, green and space. But the always kept on the back of the building at the front. Yes. Um, but no, uh, the answer is no. Uh, you know, they're there for a reason. Uh, you know, with the center, you know, actually a perfect example uh, of you know of council making a misstep just recently regarding homes not Honda's situation where there was a tool brought forward for city council to be able to vote on to, that would prevent something like that from happening in the future. Um, it was voted down. Unfortunately, you know, unfortunately, the the, the councillors on the peninsula got outvoted. Uh, I thought it would have been a great measure to put in place. You know, one of the things that we did on school board uh, is you have to you have to always go back and revisit your your bylaws, your policies, and procedures to make sure that they're current and up to date and meeting the standards of what you're dealing with on the day. So the center plan. Um, you know, I know Tim's not 100% on the center plan, but I think, you know, with the amount of, with the amount of uh, community that's been going out to it, um, you know, once we have this center plan developed, it's, if it's solid and it's strong, then, you know, rules are rules are rules. That's the way it is. It's, uh, that's the whole point of developing these plans. There's no... Anyways, yeah, I can ramble on about it. Thanks. Mr. Smith. As Chris just said, everyone's going to probably agree that, no, it shouldn't, it shouldn't. 
But at the same time, you are at risk of, if you say that no bylaws should be changed, then we are at risk for more things like homes, not Hondas, to happen. And so we need to be able to have the leeway to say, well, e- even though this, this bylaw is, is here, we need to be able to say when there's an opportunity where that bylaw needs to change so we can save the, the, the history or the makeup of our community, then maybe we can review that and in, 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 in change that policy or that bylaw. Which is hard because we put these rules in place so they are there, but there are times where we have to step out of that to make sure that we sustain our communities. And if we were able to do that with the homes on Hondas, we would still have those those homes. Um, and the developer was in was in the complete right because they were working by that land use and by that zoning policy, which we had nothing to, we could do nothing. Petition was made. It did nothing, which is sad, which is sad to say. So for me, really, it's just we we should not disregard the bylaws, but we also need to make sure that when we're writing policy, especially for the center plan, that we have that wiggle room so we can't see these things happening moving forward for our, our neighborhoods. Brendan Summerholder. I have what you might call a, a general bias towards uh, following the existing development rules. And that's the way that it's written currently, is that uh, conditions need to have changed substantially for us, uh, for council to consider a change to the rules. So for me, that word substantially, or, or however you want to call it, that's that's where it really uh, lies. Now, as chair of the planning advisory committee for our area, I've heard it many, many times, uh, the argument that's been made by some folks in the development that uh, it's that the rules are, are simply old. Uh, and indeed, they are old. The, the kind of the newest rules that are uh, governing our development, our city right now, were, were written and implemented in the 80s. So indeed, they are old. But the fact that they're old is is not enough. Now, of course, the center plan process is, is meant to take it from, you know, the 80s and the 70s and the 50s to 2016. So hopefully that argument that the rules are old uh, stop actually being an argument that can come up at all. Uh, and it starts being more a conversation around, OK, have circumstances actually changed considerably in such a way that we ought to consider uh, revising uh, the rules. And I would have to say that in most cases, the answer really should be no. Uh, If center plan really is this great consultative process, and if center plan really does reflect the will of the community, which if elected, I'll make sure that it does, then that should be a plan that we follow pretty much to the T until it comes time to look at it once again. And I do think, by the way, that we need to build in revision periods and review periods, because yes, indeed, as Anthony and others have said, conditions do change. And it's not okay to keep entering into site-specific amendments because the, the, the uh, rules are old. So we do have to make sure that indeed we're uh, updating our rules as conditions change, but following them when we have them. Okay, we have, um, I have two more questions on the, the, I've got a couple of people who flagged questions. I think we have time for, for two more. So um, uh, you're next, and we're going to start with the middle group, and then you're up, and we'll start with the final group, just so there's no confusion over who's starting when. I would like to be able to squeeze in another round. It, would That's that be a, a, a... No, I appreciate that. Thank you. I, I want this to be a question that you guys can answer with yes or no. Uh, don't feel like you have to. My name's... Uh, that's right. My, my name's Scott Edgar. Uh, I've, I've lived in District 8 since I came to Nova Scotia. I'm also a volunteer with an organization called It's More Than Buses that advocates for better public transit in HRM. Uh, and I want to ask you a question about Bears Road, Roby Street, and the McDonald Bridge. So here's the question. On Bears Road, Roby Street, and the McDonald Bridge, would you vote to convert private vehicle lanes into bus-only lanes? 
in order to make public transit move faster to make sure that buses don't get stuck in congestion. That's it. Okay, so Table, Mr. Murphy. Yeah. Uh, yes, well, and uh, the reason is that now they have the number one bus that wants to go down Roslyn Road to get it off Bears Road. So you're taking a residential street, and you're going to send, in part of the transit plan, a bus that's not going to stop on the road, but it's going to go down to get to go away from Bears Road. So I yes, it's that's a no-brainer. Yes, Chris Poole. Yes, uh, and our transit system does need a, a major overhaul. I mean, a lot of changes that need to happen with that. But yes, Lindell Smith. Thumbs up. Yes, uh, our public transit system needs to be as, as or more convenient than private vehicles or people won't choose it. Mr. Carvery? We need to take a look at transportation comprehensively. I'm tired of um, people considering bicycles to be secondary vehicles on our roads. So when we're talking transportation, whether it's vehicle, uh, buses, or bicycles, or walking, and you know a lot of people are on those motorized scooters on our streets. We need to look at it comprehensively, but the answer to your question is yes. Anthony Kowalski. The, the answer is indeed yes. We also, um, part, part of my mandate, my remit, my desire is to see a reversal of the domination of the car in the city. Um, I want to see, um, as a councillor and council, look to reverse the, the entire attitude that you can park outside the building, the shop of your choice, in order to buy a pack of cigarettes. We really need to, to reverse that and, and, and create a really livable city that uh, doesn't totally uh, be dominated by the car. Thank you. Thank you. Um, my name's Janet Stevenson. I've lived in Des District 8 for uh, 30 years, not multi-generational, but I love the district. There seems to be general agreement that the development that we're under siege by is of concern to significant um, citizens. There also seems to be general agreement that you're, whoever's elected is going to be only one voice on council, and with all due respect, I think that the problem of District 8 is not going to be solved by talking to other councillors. So my question to each of you, and maybe you can limit it to one minute so we can have one more question, is what is your proposal to give more power to the citizens of District 8 to affect how their neighbourhoods are developed? Thank you. Mr. Summerhalder. Super good question. That's exactly right. right. Uh, what we're seeing is that uh, rural and suburban uh, districts are able to hold the balance of power on issues that are even right in the middle of our, uh, uh, our municipality. Uh, for example, the Wellington Street development is one uh, very, very hot one. Uh, so we have community councils in Halifax Regional Municipality. There's only four of them across 16 districts. Uh, four community councils uh, for, for, uh, across this many is, is uh, not enough. It means that the, the community councils are too large to truly represent what you'd consider to be a community. So what I'd like to see is a greater number of community councils. I'd like to see um, that they are tighter and actually do represent communities so that there might be an urban core community council, for example. And then finally, that those community councils are better empowered to make local decisions, especially around development, and that if uh, that community council makes a decision, it would only be on a two-third majority that it could be overturned by regional council. We really do need to have development decisions uh, made locally. Thank you. Mr. Smith. 
Brandon hit it. That's <laughs> we really need to look at our process and, and also to, to add to what Brendan said, what needs to happen as well is there needs to be a, a piece into that where the engagement, the engagement must be done with not only stakeholders but community members who don't have a voice in most of our processes. The reason why a lot of these things happen is because there's not proper engagement done to people who are afraid to speak because they feel they might get pushed out of their housing, because they f they're afraid that they might, them speaking out may do something to them for whatever reason. And we need to put some real, some real strict engagement policies through the city to allow more residents to want to be part of this process and then giving them the power to say, we don't want this, we've agreed on it, you have to put that into consideration when you go to council and there's no getting around it. So I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm for it. Mr. Poole. Thank you. Um, well, I'm going to take Lindell's words and say Lindell and Brendan hit it. it uh, they, I couldn't have said it better myself. The, the only thing I'd like to add to what they've just said is that uh, I'm hearing the same thing on the doorstep. Um, people are frustrated, they're upset, and they feel like they're being left out of the process, which is absolutely not right. You know, our job is our, our job of whoever gets elected as council, councillor for the area, needs to be out there talking to people, encouraging people to come out, take part, uh, as. Pat said earlier in the conversation, you know, a counselor also acts as a connector to make sure that the different organizations within, within District 8 are being heard and being brought to these meetings as well. So I'm not going to take up more time just babbling because they hit it so the next person can go. Mr. Murphy. Uh, Janet, thank you for your question and your advocacy too. So in the planning department, if you're in a housing authority uh, and you're going to invite somebody to a public meeting, there's one invite that would go to, let's say, Bears Westwood, Mulgrave Park, wherever. We could fix that overnight by having invites delivered. People are disengaged. And I'm, I'm sorry to say that whoever wins District 8 is one vote. One out, one out, of, out of 16. And I really wish that we stop picking on local government because we are the size of Prince Edward Island. It's a two-and-a-half-hour drive from Hubbard's to Sheet Harbor. Pick on the provincial government. Pick on the MLAs who have an assistant, they have a budget for an office, and there should be about 27 MLAs, not 52. 16, and when I was on council, serving council, we had 23 councillors, nine of which were women, and they're all equal to me as councillors. And we all tried to work together and do as best you can. But you do sometimes need to be a connector and get votes from other, other spots. To, what's important to my community should be important to Sheet Harbor. Mr. Kowalski. The I learn and appreciate about the complexities, um, if not the sheer size of our district. We have two gateway bridges, we have most of the outflow from the 102, we have a seaport, we have the New Irving shipyard, we have uh, the dockyard. I know that if I were in council, as the councillor for District 8, my remit would be huge. What I would be seeking to do and what I think we actually need to be thinking of in this jurisdiction, in, and I call District 8 a jurisdiction, is we need to be thinking of a mini council for our district with the councillor being the conduit 
and the liaison with, um, I don't know how they would necessarily be funded, maybe we need to create a funding model that there are people who um, are working out there on the field, reporting and doing the legwork that I know that the councillor cannot always do. Having watched Jennifer um, perform her duties over the years, um, it, she's needs to be in 20 different places at once sometimes, so we need a bit more um, on the ground. Thank you. Mr. Carvery. First of all, um, when elected as your counselor for District 8, my responsibility is to the constituents. It's not to city council. It's not to this group or that group or this. My responsibility is to my constituents. Any vote that I make on council that affects my constituents, I will be reflective of the wishes of my constituents. In order to be effective and, and give voice to the community, our community council consists of District 7, 8, and 9. District 9, with the large portion of that district being, being in the urban core. So what I would advocate for and what I would push for, if the community council says no, it's no. Goes no further. End of story. Because... At that level, as your counselor, I need to affect one more vote, one more counselor, not all 16, one more. So we need to change the dynamics of the community council. We need to change the governance structure that the community council, if voting down a proposal says no, that's the end of the story. It goes no further. Thank you so very much. Uh, yeah. We have a factual correction being entered into the record. And it's my own fact. I was wrong. There are indeed only three community councils, not four, so it's worse than we thought. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. Uh, Lamia, would you like to come up and, and ask a, a mic-dropping last question to sort of really bring it home? Hi, I'm Lamia. Sorry, I was like... <laughs> um, <laughs> I love talking about development, but I, at some point, I was like, oh, what about the youth? Um, so my question is, um, thinking about youth, so I'm, I would consider myself a young person um, from Nova Scotia, um, and understanding and knowing what's going on with youth right now in terms of leaving the province, um, unemployment rates and stuff like that. So my question is about, um, yeah, what is what are your thoughts uh, around keeping young people here? Um, and so is that going to be a part of your, um, your visions, and what are your thoughts about that? as counselor. Okay. Uh, uh, Mr. Carvery, would you like to start? Uh, thank you very much. Of course, young people are, are important. They're the key to our future. I, I believe it or not, I was once young. We need to use the resources of HRM to create opportunities for our young people. And I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, but I have to, I have to be particular here in terms of our African Nova Scotian youth who are suffering inordinately within our system, particularly males. If you look at the prison systems, if you look at the jails, you'll see that they, they are at a higher percentage than our population. If you take a look at our education system, the number of, of African Nova Scotian students failing that system is, is just astronomical, 62% of African Nova Scotian students failed grade eight math, 62%. That is a crisis. 
So we need to work on our education. We need to use every resource, not only HRM's resources, but the provincial and federal resources to create opportunities within our education system and for jobs. We have the largest employer in HRM. We have the dockyard. We have the shipyard. We have Staticona. We have those resources that are there, but we are not taking advantage of it. We need to create opportunities for you. And that would be a key platform for me as a councillor. Thank you very much. Mr. Kowalski. As, as the Ivany report languishes on a shelf somewhere, and the committee that was set up to, um, to look into that, to report on that, is not reporting. I don't hear that reporting. We have an, a serious issue here with ageing demographics in our, in our province and that is going to be catastrophic in our future if we do not address the issue of youth retention. It needs to be shouted about, it needs to be screamed about. We need to be thinking of um, improving literacy in, and numeracy skills in order to enable people to access the um, job market and stay within it and that's whether they're young or or old and we need to be looking constantly as a city as a society towards drawing innovation here to create and bring jobs here i mean we we need a livable city we need that yes but that city also needs to be one that people want to stay in and one that people will come come to to live so that's it. Mr. Murphy. Yes, the, uh, what we used to call back, I guess, the 80s, 90s, a brain drain. Um, young people leaving. People of any race, color, growing up in District 8 or anywhere, have the right of opportunity. A right of opportunity to be no boundaries to them. And, you know, a mentorship programs. Programs, sometimes young adults are not all going to be technically skilled. Sometimes they can work with their hands. We have a totally community college, college system where we could, should identify people that may want to become a welder, a plumber, or a carpenter, some of the people you can't find to do any work for you now because they're so busy. And that also uh, should be no bounds, male and female. Um, but we need better opportunities all the time. And I through mentorship, through proper youth strategies, and not just starting in high school. It should start in elementary school. And if, of, of communities of interest, maybe even gardeners, maybe even people that have an interest in, in growing things. May, you know, that's, that is something that is technical skills you can develop before middle school, junior high school, whatever you want to call it. And I think those opportunities can be, are being lost in the way our education system is set up and also the opportunities to bring business here and to employ local people and keep people here, because we do have great people here. We have a great brain trust here of, of younger people, and we do have entrepreneurial people. Hope blooms. Thank you very much. Mr. Poole. Thank you. Um, I'd like to follow on what, what everyone's been saying. Um, keeping youth here in Halifax and Nova Scotia in general, um, it's, it's not just an HRM issue. It's not just a community issue. It's an every-level issue. It's... Um, School board, uh, city, provincial, federal, communities, uh, community programs, DAL, um, for example. You know, originally the, one of the questions was how can DAL reach out into District 8? 
mentorship programs, going to schools and help kids, um, you know, with, with, with issues that are happening within, within their communities, within their homes, within the school. Um, there's a whole host of very talented people here at the school that can go into district eight and help, help students and help them with some issues. Um, some of the decisions that have been made and I didn't want to bring this up, but like, you know, the film tax credit was a huge, was a huge hit to the province of Nova Scotia. Uh, we lost a lot of young people that were, you know, in school for, you know, for, for that industry and they're gone. Um, you know, we have to go with education. You have to, I, I guess to sum it up, go on Ted talks and look at Sir Ken Robinson. Um, he's, Brilliant man, uh, has great, great ideas around education, how education should be, should be worked. I and mean, we need to start in the very early stages of, of education so that we can teach kids, you know, what they need to be. Education should be molded around them so that they can become entrepreneurs. They can, you know, they can be creating the jobs of tomorrow so that creating their own. Like my, my children, I don't raise them to work. I didn't raise them to work for somebody. I, wrote, I raised them to work for themselves, to create their own industry. Okay, Mr. Smith. I made notes because I could talk about this all night, so I'm going to talk fast. So being 26, being in this, in this role where I could be your potential counselor, that alone shows that we need to have youth in leadership roles that understand what's happening on the ground level so we can then achieve higher. I'm going to go to my notes now. So Youth Live, we do have that. Supporting Youth Live makes expanding that so we can focus on, on a more broader um, part of our city. Um, supporting youth-ran organizations or youth youth organizations that focus on youth, so maybe the city figuring out ways to give them grants or supporting them so they can do more. Um, working with youth, so giving them leadership roles in recreation, making recreation free, like I mentioned before, would, would definitely help to that. But also putting youth in leadership roles where they can be directors, where they can be managers, where they can be supervisors, where they can actually run our centers and our places and then have the chance to move into city policy roles or IT roles, giving them the, that opportunity to move forward is what we need to see with our city. Um, and I am someone who understands I work there. This is my this is what I do. My partner over here has to leave the province because she cannot find work. We are losing talent to young people. I've spoken to 10,000 young people at once about why it's important for you to stay here and why it's important for you to show your talents. So we need to, we need to really focus on the youth and council needs to reflect that. Okay. Brendan Summerholder. Yeah, good. So, so uh, yeah, great responses across the board on, on this particular one. So uh, there, there are kind of two buckets of, of folks. Uh, I guess there is youth that uh, are, are from here. And the, the, uh, Lindell talked a lot about those. And those are all great, great, great uh, examples of things that we could do uh, for those folks. I also think our post-secondary institutions offer a fire hose of potential opportunity of young people that are, let's just keep the metaphor going, it's untapped. Uh, so, I mean, I think there's three general buckets and we, we heard about them. So, I mean, we do need to build a livable city that people want to live in, young people want to live in. That includes green space, good transit, uh, active transportation as well. Something we haven't t been able to talk about quite enough uh, here tonight, which is to build a strong arts and culture industry. Uh, HRM's investment in arts and culture industry is dismal compared to other municipalities uh, here in the country. So uh, focusing on that, I think, is really important. HRM can also be a catalyst for collaboration between industry and the educational institutions. And I think uh, we ought to be that catalyst if those connections are not being made naturally. And finally, uh, the, the municipality has a memorandum of understanding standing with our post-secondary educations to do certain amounts of work that would support the educational and career advancement goals of young people that the municipality could harness, and it's utterly underutilized. So I think uh, actually taking
taking the memorandum of understanding that exists and actually implementing it and expanding it would be a good way that we could show the leadership. Um, uh, yes, okay, so I'd like to thank everybody for coming. I'd like to thank Tim Bousquet. Uh, um, okay, this forum will air on CKDU, which is 88.1 FM, which is right next door, www.ckdu.ca, on this Friday, September 30th, from 4.30 to 6 p.m., um, it will, this forum will also be discussed on CKDU on Friday at 1.30 to 2.30 p.m. as my colleague in the Black Power Hour is indicating. So there's going to be, Friday we're just going to be talking about you all the time, your ears will be burning. Um, so thank you very much all for coming out. Um, this has been a wonderful experience. Thank you. That's a wrap for Examiner Radio's special municipal election coverage focusing on District 8 in Halifax. We heard from six of the seven candidates running to replace outgoing candidate Jennifer Watts. I'm Examiner Radio producer Russell Gregg. As always, we'd love to know what you think. If you have comments on what you've heard or story suggestions for future episodes, please send us an email to podcast at halifaxexaminer.ca. Until next week... Please make sure you're registered to vote.